Kubernetes is an open source system for automating deployment, operations, and scaling of containerized applications. Google developed Kubernetes after 15 years of running containers in production. Brendan Burns is a founder of the Kubernetes project, and he joins us today to talk about the lessons learned as Google has built containerized applications to distribute across its massive infrastructure at data centers. We talk about Docker, Borg, Kubernetes, and other distributed systems technologies. But before we get to the episode, a few things. Software Weekly is a newsletter that we put out every Sunday evening to condense what happened in the world of software over the previous week. You can sign up for Software Weekly or join our Slack community at softwareengineeringdaily.com. Also, Software Engineering Daily is looking for sponsors. If you are interested in advertising on the show, send me a message at softwareengineeringdaily at gmail.com. Brendan Burns is an engineer at Google, where he co-founded the Kubernetes Project. Brendan, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Great. Thanks for uh, having me. Containers have become a popular topic in recent years, but Google has been leveraging Linux containers at scale for more than 10 years. In order to use containers at scale, it is useful to build a container management system. What is the purpose of a container management system? Uh, I think the biggest purpose is to basically... uh, decouple application developers and application owners from physical machines, right? So the, and, and, and by doing that, enable multiple applications to share machines, right? And to standardize the machines that things run on so that the people who are responsible for the operating system, the people who are responsible for maintaining the machines, their job effectively is to only create a single, totally homogenous widget, um, and the container orchestration system is responsible effectively for finding places for the application to run. The best analogy that I can come up with um, is, you know, our computers at this point, the computers that we're using right now, have multiple cores in the processor. But when you double-click on an application, you don't tell the operating system, like, oh, please run this on core number one, right? You just say, hey, I have this application. It needs to run. I want it to run somewhere. Uh, and the operating system is responsible for finding a core that it can run on. And, and the same thing is true at the data center level, right? You don't really want to know, like, oh, run this on machine, one, two, three, four, five. You just say, hey, I have this application. It needs three cores. Find some place for it to run. And that's really what the what its job is. And it does more than that as well. Um, but I would say that's the first motivation is, is the idea that application developers really shouldn't be thinking about machines. Perfect. The first unified container management system at Google was called Borg. Why did Borg get created? Um, you know, it, it was really because we had a lot of the problems that a lot of people are facing right now. Um, there's heterogeneous machines. They're not being used as well as they could be. They're not being used as efficiently as they could be. Um, and we really needed to have a way of maximizing the utilization of the machines without forcing programmers to necessarily totally re-architect their applications. So that was sort of the major. And then also to combine uh, the two systems, uh, the babysitter system and the global work queue system that were being sort of used. One was being used for online jobs and one was being used for batch jobs. Combine those into one pool so that, you know, MapReduces could come and take advantage of cycles that were free when search was, you know, in the middle of the night when people weren't using search or whatever it happened to be. Okay, so I was going to ask about these predecessors to Borg, Babysitter and Global Work Queue. 
Were there actual shortcomings of these systems, or was it more that you just wanted to unify them? Uh, I wouldn't necessarily say they're shortcomings, but it wasn't as um, – it definitely wasn't unified. And I, I mean, I should say this is all before my time at Google. So uh, this is all sort of you know tribal knowledge rather than things I directly experienced. Borg was sort of just starting right as I came, on, came to Google. Um, they weren't full systems. I mean, they, they were – Babysitter was really built just to sort of keep things alive. It was like a glorified supervised D or a glorified Monit. Um, it wasn't really an orchestration system. Um, and so I think, you know, it, these things evolve. And every time you build one, you see sort of the things that you could do better the next time. And I think that's part of it as well. And of course, the fleet had gotten bigger, too. These two different types of applications that you would want to run on a container management system, long-running jobs and uh, batch jobs... Borg was built to manage both of these, and the, these these long-running user-facing services and batch jobs, they differ in how they consume resources. How do they differ, and how does Borg manifest in servicing both of these types of requests? Well, I think that the biggest way that they differ is sort of in terms of how urgent it is that they have their resources, or maybe another way to say that is uh, how tolerant they are to having their resources taken away. Um, you know, a serve, a, a, an online serving job, you know, it has to serve that user's request for a search. It, it can't just sort of be like, hey, you know, I don't have CPU right now. Could you come back in five minutes? Um, whereas a lot of these batch processing jobs, they're tolerant, right? They, they've been designed, MapReduce is an architecture that's designed to be tolerant of things crashing or of things... Uh, running more slowly on one machine than on another machine. Um, and the, usually the, the delay for the output isn't that big a deal. I mean, in some cases, you know, these analytics processing pipelines actually do need to be quick. Um, and sort of it crosses over. You sort of have batch becoming a little bit more like an online system. Uh, but in many cases, it's sort of like, well, we want to run this once a day. If it takes an extra 20 minutes, you know, not that big a deal. Um, and so I think the biggest way that, that we handle this is effectively by having different kinds of prioritization and different ki- and, and effectively being able to overschedule, right? So one of the ways you can achieve utilization, the airline industry knows this, of course, plenty of industries know this at this point, um, is, is overscheduling, right? Sell more capacity than you have under the knowledge that some people are just not going to show up or some processes are going to lie about how much CPU they use or just not going to need that CPU right now for some reason, Um and so the nice thing about having these different kinds of workloads together is that um, when you do hit that machine that gets oversubscribed, when suddenly everybody who's asked for a core is actually using that core, um, you can kill the batch jobs oftentimes without impacting uh, you know, a, a user who's running a search. And by killing off the batch jobs, you can get back to enough capacity that you can handle the, the search uh, things that are going on. So I would say that in general, we view batch as being more mobile, more just dis- more disruption tolerant. Um, and, and we ha- use that effectively in order to drive utilization. Of. I'd love to get an idea of the developer's experience when launching an application that is serviced by Borg. Give me an idea of the contract between a developer and the Borg system and how that communication proceeds. Uh, well, you know, I mean, I think if you've experienced Kubernetes, it's pretty identical, right? We really designed Kubernetes uh, to have the same kind of experience. You create a configuration file that describes a declarative description of what your application is like, including things like um, the image, you know, that you want to run and the resources that you need and 
configuration flags and all of that kind of stuff. Um, and just as in Kubernetes, you say, you know, kube control create, um, and that tells the system, hey, this is what I want to run. And then the system is responsible for making sure that that actually happens. And for listeners who are less familiar with these systems, Borg and Kubernetes, there's a paper that came out recently that much of the preparation I did for this show uh, came from. It is called Lessons from Borg, Omega, and Kubernetes, which are these three evolutions of container management at Google. And so I'd like to evolve towards Kubernetes. So we've been talking about Borg and Omega is described as an offspring of Borg. What does that mean? What is Omega? Uh, I, I think the most interesting thing about Borg was that it was um, it was developed initially really around just kind of merging these two systems. But uh, what happened was as people started using it, as more and more people started using it, they started building um, sort of e- an ecosystem of services that worked with and around Borg. So they built service discovery and they built, uh, you know, even things like Bigtable that are basically taken for granted at this point as storage technology. Like there are all of these systems that were uh, organically evolved on top of Borg that made uh, it a more useful ecosystem. Um, And it was sort of a natural, you know, sort of a natural evolution of like a team would build something that was useful to them. And then they would talk about that system with their friends and some other team would pick it up and the things that were not useful sort of died out and the things that were useful continued on. But the net effect of that was that this thing grew extremely organically. Um, And so it's hard to, it doesn't present a very unified experience. It doesn't present um, so you, you sort of don't know ahead of time what you're going to need to design, and then once Borg, you're saying Borg involved, doesn't present a consistent experience. Well, the Borg ecosystem, okay. right? Like monitoring and uh, service discovery and all of these things, they, they grew out organically, right? And so each team that built them, maybe they'd use a different configuration file format or a different location, or you know, there there were just little differences that happen when lots of different teams engineer things independently. Um, that made it pretty heterogeneous. And so Omega was sort of an effort to take a step back and sort of say, hey, you know, what are the things that, that we've learned that we need and what is the architecture that works? And um, and also I think, that, you know, like any other code base, a code base gets kind of long in the tooth and, and you sort of look at it and you say, okay, what are the refactorings that we need to do in order to make this maintainable and all the, you know, this kind of stuff. Um, and so that was really what Omega was. And the way that the paper describes this, encapsulates it, is by saying Omega is built to have a more consistent and principled architecture. And one component of this architecture is that the state of the cluster is stored in a centralized, Paxos-based, transaction-oriented store. Describe how this store works. Uh, I mean, really, it was the idea that you wanted, I mean, so part of the problem with the heterogeneity is that um, each system sort of had its own store somewhere, right? And so it's very hard to make cross-cutting changes, right? Like if you need to change three systems and you want to make sure that it's atomic and things like that, it's very hard to do it because, you know, you don't even necessarily know the format and things break and stuff like that. And so the, the Omega Persistent Store was really intended to be the one place for state and the one place for state management and all of the agents... So that enables effectively effective coordination between the agents by everybody sort of coordinating through the store. And so all of the agents that implement the system would use that store for communication. Atomicity, for example, how is that managed in Borg? 
Uh, well, each subsystem is responsible for it for itself, right? Ah, uh, okay. Right. So, so each system itself is is atomic, and the core bits of Borg are atomic. But you know, if you need to do anything that that is cross cutting, it's it's hard. Right. You have to kind of do it above. You have to do it in a layer that's above, or you use something like Chubby, um, the lock system for for providing distributed locks and things like that. And, and so when you build this into Omega, this transaction-oriented store, what's an example of a type of transaction that would be put in this store? I mean, literally everything, right? Like literally every single API call, creating an application, creating a load, you know, everything that you, that you want to do goes into the, the persistent store. Um, it, I mean, if you look at the Kubernetes architecture, it's very similar, and there's some differences, obviously, but it's very similar in the sense of like, there are no side stores. There are no, every single piece of the system has a, a place where it goes to, to hold its data. And we, we try very hard to make sure that things don't keep data anywhere else. Omega has multiple schedulers. What does this mean? And what are the advantages of having multiple schedulers? Uh, so I think that what you find is that different classes of jobs just want different kinds of scheduling. Um, and so, you want to have the ability to have a, a user be able to choose um, which scheduler they want and what they want to. Uh, I mean, even just the difference between batch and online, or like you know, a scheduler might you might be able you want might want to be able to say something to a scheduler like you should consider time, right? Like schedule this soon, right? Like if you're scheduling a web server, it doesn't really make sense to say schedule me soon, but if you're scheduling a batch job, you can if you can say to the scheduler like hey. I don't want, you know, I don't want to go all the way down the road to giving you an SLA and say like, hey, you have to, you know, run this in, within the next 24 hours or whatever it is. But I want to say a really a kind of a vague thing that is like soon um, and it will try sometime in the next, you know, five to 10 to 20 minutes to find a place to run this thing. But it's not urgent. Right. And so that enables the scheduler to be a little bit more flexible and make better decisions. Um or not better decisions, but do a packing that is more efficient. So by multi-scheduler model, you mean that the developer can specify constraints like, I need this run soon, or constraints like, I need this amount of CPU, or I need this amount of you know RAM or something, different constraints. Well, you do, you do both of those, right? I mean, there's hard constraints, which are, I need this much CPU, or I need this much RAM. And then there's soft constraints, like, I'd really like this result in the next 10 minutes. Or... You know, I'd really rather this didn't. These two things didn't land on the same machine. But if the choice is between not landing on the same machine and not running, I guess put them on the same machine. Um, things like that. And, and Kubernetes, you know, Kubernetes makes the same distinction between hard constraints and soft constraints. Okay, so let's get into Kubernetes. Kubernetes is the third container management system developed at Google, and you co-founded it. Tell me why Kubernetes got started and how it got started. Sure. Um, I mean, the why is because we had seen, I mean, actually, all, in, in my time at cloud, even before I started working on Kubernetes, um, I had this belief and this intuition that we needed to help the world uh, start running systems the way that Google ran systems internally. Um, because I had experienced it building search infrastructure at Google, and I just thought it was a better model, right? Like, it just is easier for the developer. It's it's just, there's all this stuff when you go back into cloud and you're suddenly dealing with virtual machines, you realize, like, I don't want to deal with any of this, right? Like, I don't want to deal with kernels. I don't want to deal with SSH. I don't want to, like, there's all this stuff that I just don't want to deal with. I don't want to deal with OS images. Um, 
And, you know, all this stuff that I'd learned actually when I was doing Linux sysadmin like long, long ago, um, I suddenly flooded back as I came into cloud and I was just like, oh, you know, I don't want any of this. And I don't think developers want any of this. Um, and we, but we tried to do it with machines um, because the belief sort of was at the time. And I think the truth was at the time that uh, uh, people wanted machines. Like that was the, that was the thing that people were used to. And it was sort of their, their security blanket. Um, so we developed uh, things that became like uh, uh, the, the, uh, deployment manager that was launched uh, in Google Cloud, which is kind of sort of akin to CloudFormation or Heat or any of these sort of like puppet chef, these kinds of systems that manage machines. Um, and uh, as well as managed instance groups, which are uh, sort of an auto-scaling group for, for virtual machines. Um, but as we were watching and as we saw Docker sort of really popularize containers, we realized like all of a sudden that we actually could start talking about the thing that we actually had built and actually ran inside, which was a container orchestrator, instead of trying to sort of take some of the ideas and make them work for virtual machines. Um, so containers were and, kind of opaque as an idea before this this inflection point of Docker, you're saying? I think nobody, I mean, people had heard of them a little bit, like especially in the PaaS community, people had been you know using LXC and stuff like that, which is, of course, how Docker or dot cloud at the time ran across containers in the first place is that they were kind of coming out of the past community. Um, but they weren't widespread. Right. And I think that's because there was no good tooling, right? Docker did a really great job of developing all this tooling uh, around building images and, and that sort of stuff that really made it approachable in a way that they hadn't been before and kind of really uh, put forth a vision for, what a container actually could be. I mean, and actually the vision that they put forth is much more about the image than it is about the runtime, which is an interesting thing that I think we at Google didn't really, um, you know, we didn't really fully grok in terms of the way, because we tried for a long time to convince people to use containers. Um, not, I mean, not super actively, but, but and, and people have, right? I mean, Facebook uses them and Twitter, you know, like the people who are sort of building internet scale companies, they understood, um, but but we weren't doing a very good job articulating the why. Ex- and explain explain and really- that difference between the image, uh, focusing on the image versus the runtime. Is that application-oriented infrastructure? Is that what you're talking about? Well, that's part of it. But I think that what, what, what happened was is that the truth is that the existing configuration management systems like the Puppets and Chefs and Ansibles and Salts of the world, they, they're not that good um, in, in the sense that the failure modes that they have tend to be like the way that the best way that I describe it is they're kind of like JavaScript or like Lisp when I used to program in Lisp. Like when they fail, they fail while they're running, not while they're building. Like you're in the middle of a deployment, you're in the middle of a, I mean, in bash is the same, bash scripts are the same way, right? Like, but when you're in the middle of a deployment, they fail. If they fail, your deployment is halfway done. And it's very hard to know, like, how do I get the heck out of this situation? Like, even the roll forward might not work. And the roll back, it's like, I don't even know how to... All of the steps were forward steps. I have no idea how to roll back. Um, And what they did with the container image is they said, actually, let's take all of that and let's make it a build time thing, right? Let's let's take that thing that was this, like, dynamic, it'll fail during runtime language, and let's turn it into... You can still run Puppet. You can still run Chef. They're good tools for expressing what you want. But let's run it during this build, this sort of compile step, if you will. Um, and that way, if failures happen, they happen while you're building the image. Your production users, they don't even see the failures. 
right? And, and the thing that you built, it's totally hermetically sealed and static. And when you deploy it, it's very atomic, right? It either goes out or it doesn't. And if it doesn't go out, you just try again, right? You just say, copy that again. Um, and, and, if it, and if it fails to copy, you don't even start the container. And so like, you get a really clear signal of like, what's broken and what's not. And I think for a lot of people, that was the that still is the magic bullet of containers is that it, it turned the process of doing a deployment from being this thing where you crossed your fingers and really, really hoped to something that you just trusted and knew and almost could walk away. From. Yes. And so you mentioned this key to making application oriented infrastructure work, which is the hermetic container image. What does the term hermetic mean? Uh, I mean, it means that it is self-contained, right? It, it, carries everything with it right it's like that the hermit crab carries its house along yes. it's like it carries everything that it that it needs it, it, it things can't things can't cross the container boundary things can't come in things can't go out when a hermetic container image is built properly the only external dependencies will be the linux kernel system call interface so tell me about this point of interaction between a container image and its external environment right so i mean at the end of the day of course there are the calls that the operating system implements um, that that the container doesn't bring with it, right? That whole point of containers versus VMs is that they share an operating system, they share the kernel. Um, and so, you know, there's a lot that we think of as being the operating system that actually isn't really a, the operating system, right? Like libc or the, you know, all of these pieces that uh, a, a big operating system like Ubuntu or Debian installs the in user space, they're not really part of the operating system. You know, the real part of the operating system is the kernel, the thing that runs in privileged mode. Um, and so the, the container carries with it everything, libc and all of that stuff. But at a certain point, it makes these privileged syscall containers down into the, or syscall calls down into the um, kernel. And there's a interface there, right? I mean, there's a, those are functions. They're written in C. They're, they have signatures um, and they exist, you know, they get introduced into the kernel at different times. And so in one kernel version, there's a set of them. And in another kernel version, there's some new functions. Um, and they try very hard to do backwards compatibility and to, you know, to keep these things migrating forward. Um, but it, but if your application needs bleeding edge kernel features, right, it needs fe- features from the very latest kernel, and you run that container on top of a kernel from two or three years ago, that container won't work, right? Um and so it's not perfect, right? Like we have this impression that containers are sort of like run on any kernel and then you always sort of put an asterisk next to it. So like run on any mostly modern kernel, right? Yeah. And, and so I, I think the best approach is to say like, just don't use bleeding edge kernel features. Or if you do, then like understand that you're not backwards compatible. Okay, so let's talk more about uh, container infrastructure usage. So applications that are running on a container in a Google machine, for example, or I think in any Kubernetes architecture, are actually running in nested containers. And there's an external container called a pod or alloc, which performs the resource allocation. And then multiple application containers can get scheduled within that alloc. This idea of always nesting containers inside of a container that is dedicated to the resource allocation was this a part of all of the Google container management systems that have been developed, or was this a breakthrough that, that you guys had after some trial and error? Well, it's definitely part of Borg, but it's done in a way where users in Borg opt into it. All right, so you can either run a bare container or you can run an alloc 
and put a container in the alloc. Oh, okay. Um, and the and that choice. And I actually don't know historically whether that's because they thought that they should have two different versions or if it's a historic like, oh, we used to have single containers and then we realized that alloc's are important. I suspect it was the latter, given the way that it's engineered, is that it was the latter. And they were like, oh, we need alloc, and they added it in. Um, but there were always these two software paths, and it's very bad to have a system that, where there are two software paths that do approximately the same thing. Um, you know, I mean, so in Kubernetes, we basically said like, well, we're actually going to always just, we're going to start with Alex. And even if there's only one container, we're going to have a container within a container um, just because it's simpler from an engineering perspective to build the system that way, to have the single container use case just be a degenerate version of the multi-container use case. Totally. So one thing I find interesting is some of the sets of distributed systems principles that came out of this paper, Borg, Omega, and Kubernetes. Different entities across Kubernetes need to work together, and an easy way to resolve this would be to construct a centralized orchestration system. But centralization does not scale. So Kubernetes was designed with an emphasis on choreography over centralized orchestration. And this emphasis on centralized choreography over centralized, sorry, decentralized choreography over centralized orchestration, is this a new idea or has this been evolving over the last you know, 10 or 15 years? Or Explain how this idea of decentralized choreography manifests in Kubernetes. Well, I mean, it's an idea that's been around in a lot of different areas for a long time. Um, I think that for me, the biggest motivation for this was, um, so my PhD is in robotics. Um, so I have a pretty strong background in robotics and these ideas uh, have been present in robotics for a really long time back to sort of Rod Brooks and the subsumption architectures that he designed in MIT in sort of the mid eighties. Um, you know, this idea that, the the most robust and, and before that, even in control theory and everything else like that, like the most ro- the the way to produce a robust system is to have lots of independent entities that are all capable of operating without coordinating with one another, um, because they all have very simple jobs and they all just look at the world and and take a small action, and the net effect of that is the overall system. It's it's an emergent it's an emergent design. It's an emergent behavior. Um, I think that the reason that you do that is because in big, complicated uh, dis, you know, systems where you have a big state diagram of this goes here and this sort of thing, um, you tend to not anticipate all of the conditions. And when the unanticipated conditions happen, all hell breaks loose. Um, and so instead, if, you, if each little actor has a very small job, they really have no choice, right? Like they have one thing that they're supposed to do and they just do it. Um, and so that just leads to a, a more robust um, robust system. I mean, I think you can actually, in some sense, see parallels in software art, in sort of the evolution of software architecture and the evolution of software teams, right? I mean, I think that actually agile and microservices and all of these sort of movements of late are actually reflections of the same thing, right? Like the idea that you don't want, like no plan survives contact with the enemy, right? Like you don't want to spend four months planning out the perfect evolution of your software system only to discover that in those four months, the product has changed, right? And so that plan is totally useless. It's much better to launch and iterate and, and move in a sort of a more interactive manner. And I, so I think it's, it's the same idea kind of gets reflected over and over and over again. In terms of the actual technical engineering, 
you know, I think of Hadoop, for example, the first uh, versions of Hadoop, or I'm not sure if, where it stands now, but, you know, it has, had the name node as a single point of failure. Uh, and But I think of the, chore- the decentralized choreography as a move in the opposite direction, away from from centralized f- points of failure, and you know, I'm not a distributed systems expert. I would love if if you could uh, explain explain better how Kubernetes is able to succeed without having some centralized point of of failure and some centralized point of synchronization. Well, it does in the sense that the store, right, the API store, is that right. So we use the storage system effectively as the, the, the ground truth, the place of coordination. Um, it's not necessarily coordination because it's not actually, it's not actually coordinated, I guess is what is the way to say it. Um, in the sense that, you know, let's say you're creating a replicated thing, right? You're, you're creating a replication controller that creates a replicated web server. You want 10 copies of that web server. Well, you as a user, you put a request in that creates this replication controller object, right? You, you put that into storage. Now, and that's sort of your action. And, and then there's another little daemon that is sitting there that is watching the replication controllers. And it sees that there's a new replication controller, and it adds that replication controller to its management set. Um, and, but it doesn't know, right? Like, that daemon, when it sees that new replication controller, it has no idea why it saw a new one. Right? It could be because it just failed and it just restarted. Right? It crashed and it's getting its state from scratch. It could be because the cluster had just been turned up. Right? You've just done an upgrade and it's turning up the cluster for the first time. Or it could be because the user you know, created this new thing and suddenly and it didn't exist before. Right? The controller doesn't care. Right? Like that's the whole, the whole point of the not having the state is you don't have to have three different versions of like, oh, I'm in the, I just crashed and restarted state, or oh, I'm in the new cluster turnup state, or oh, I'm in the user created something state. It's like those three things, they collapse onto one because from the controller's perspective, it's like, hey, new thing, don't know, I guess I should start managing it. Um, and the same thing with creating the 10 replicas, right? So you ask the replication controller for... 10 replicas and the replication controller looks and it says, Oh, I've been asked for 10 of these things and there's zero of them. Um, and it has no idea, right? Like why are there zero? It doesn't really care, right? There, there could be zero because they all just crashed. It could be zero because they were all on one machine and that machine died. It could be zero because, you know, you just created it and nothing was ever created, but the controller doesn't care again. So those, you don't have three States. You have one, this, this like, it's just, I looked at the world. I need to take some action. And so it looks at the world, it sees nothing, it starts creating things. Um, and so whenever it starts, all it does is, and this comes back to control theory and, and to you know the way your thermostat works or the way that your cruise control works or anything else like that, it looks at the world, it has this desired state, it has the observed state, state it differences the desired state and the observed state, finds the places where they're different, and takes action to try and take the observed state towards the desired state. Right, that's a very stable. Like, I, I have this. I had this experience when I taught uh, taught robotics, and one of the class assignments was to do wall following. So you have to make a robot that follows a wall, and the you know these sort of early programmers, what they the the, the people who I was teaching who who hadn't done much of this stuff, they create all these if statements. 
like if I'm closer than one meter, turn to the right. If I'm farther, like and and it's just and then then they're like, oh, that doesn't quite work. I guess I'll add another if statement, and they add this like subcondition if statement, and they end up with this giant nest of if statements. And you sit them down and you say, like, actually, here's what it is. It's a loop. And you subtract the distance you are from the wall from the desired distance. And you take that and you turn that into input to the motors. And that's it. Right? And if you're too close, then that is a negative input. And if you're if you're too far, then that's a positive input. And it just works. Yeah. Right. And it's this one loop that just does it that does it all that that isn't this sort of fancy state machine of, oh, I'm too close or I'm too far or oh, I need, I'm too far to the left, I'm too far to the right. Like, it just works. Um, and, and the replication controller is the same kind of thing. There's a section of the paper about Borg, Omega, and Kubernetes that talks about the lessons learned and some of the mistakes that, that were made and the, the hard lessons, I guess. So according to that paper, the biggest problem that these different container management systems have encountered is that of configuration. Could you describe what this configuration problem refers to and why it is such a challenge? Sure. Um, so configuration is basically how do you describe your application, right? Not And not your application that runs on an individual machine, but your application that runs across a bunch of machines. Right. How do you effectively package up a bunch of different, you know, I want four front ends and 10 back ends and six middleware. How do I package that up into one thing that I can deploy? Right. Um, and I think there's a variety of reasons why it has turned out to be such a hard problem. Um, and I think they really come down to sort of programming languages, right? In the sense that it's this place where suddenly it's not really clear what the right answer is. And so people have different opinions, just like, you know, you can get to these giant fights of like, Oh, you should really use Python or you should really use go, or you should really use C plus well, one. No one should use it. No, I, I'm just kidding. I like C plus plus. You, you get to this place where there's an abstraction layer there where different people can have different opinions and almost actually different applications can have different opinions, right? Like if your go is great for Kubernetes, but if you're writing a GUI app, you're insane to write it in Go because there's no good toolkit for doing GUIs in Go, right? Like if you're doing a web app, Node is way better than Go. There's way more libraries in Node than there is than there are in Go for doing web development. Um, and and I think config turns out turns out to be the same problem, right? Like if if you're trying to describe search, which you know is a service that spans the globe effectively the kinds of tools you want to build are going to be a lot different than if you're describing the web server you're deploying, you know, in your, in your home server. Um, and, and also there's these different layers of abstraction that you can jump to, right? Like some people, and it sort of reflects the IaaS has stuff where it's like some people, they want to say something like, I want to run that jar file and 20,000 QPS make it. So, right. That's their configuration is like, this amount of serving traffic, this jar, go for it, right? And you figure out everything else, right? And there are other people who want to say, like, no, I need 1.5 cores for each of these replicas, and I need these number of middleware, and they're connected in this way, and this topology deployed into this data center. And for this data center that happens to be, you know, core, five, core i5 instead of core i7, like, do this other different config because they are on memory constrained, not CPU constrained, or whatever it happens to be. And, and it's not clear that there's one answer that fits all of those. And I think it took a long time for us to figure that out. 
I think we kept thinking, like all programming language people do, I think we kept thinking that there was one answer. And like, if we only got the one right answer, we would, you know, we, it would be perfect and beautiful. Um, and I think the other thing is like, I think you can also look at it um, like the trajectory in HTML. Like, I don't know how, how, how much web, you know, how much history in web dev you have, but like I started way back in like pre JavaScript pages, one O days, like 1997, 96 kind of range. Um, when like we had servlets and we were like inlining HTML code in servlets, like in the Java code, you'd be like string open quote, big, long spew of HTML, close quote. It was horrible, right? Like, just terrible. Like, and, and also, like, we weren't really designers, right? We weren't, we weren't HTML people. And so you'd give this Java class to some designer, and they'd be like, oh, this isn't even laid out right. Um, and then GSP came along to kind of solve that a little bit. Um, and it was okay. And then PHP, and PHP is the same way. It's like, mix your code. But then the designer was still kind of grumpy because there's all this code spewed in with their design. And the programmers were kind of unhappy because, like, there was all this HTML spewed in with their code, and they couldn't really test it, and it was hard. Um, and then you fast forward 10 years or so, and you get to something like Angular, where there's this really crisp delineation between, like, hey, that's the HTML, and this is the code, and we keep them separate, and we don't, we don't mix them together, right? Like designers think about the HTML and they put these curly brace things in where data splats in and the programmers think about the JavaScript program and they do that. And I, I think that config is headed in the same direction. So if you look at deployment manager, which is a cloud Google cloud product um, that I think reflects our best state of the art approach to this, it's really trying to do the same thing. It says like config, it's not programmatic. It is just a, a data declaration. It's done in YAML. And if you want to do programmatic stuff, you do it in, a, in real code, in a real programming language where there's good utilities, where there's code review styles, where there's unit testing frameworks, where there's all of the infrastructure that's necessary in order to write high quality code. Um, and you don't try and mix the two together. I think too many times people, I mean, I, I say this, like the trajectory, having done this a few times, the trajectory goes something like this. You're like, we learned our lesson. And there's this great blog out there. I can't remember where it is, but there's this great blog. It's like the... 12 hours of code cycle and it starts at, at zero where it's like, there's all this config in our code. This sucks. We need to extract our config out into a data file. And you're like, Oh, I extracted my config out to a data file. And then you're that's at like the three o'clock setting. And then at the six o'clock setting, you're like, you know what? It would be really great if I just had string concatenation. Could you just add string concatenation to your data file format? And then at the nine o'clock setting, it's like, well, how about some like, light functions, maybe mid-max and some math. Could I have some arithmetic functions? And at 12 o'clock, you've reinvented a new Turing complete programming language, right? And you're back to having your config in code and it still sucks, right? And so like, it's, I don't know, it's a hard problem. Yeah. Okay, so I want to zoom out and begin to conclude. I know we're up against time. Uh, you know, you started working on Kubernetes in this world where developers were starting to become interested in Linux containers and you know, Google was was starting to think about selling public cloud infrastructure, and you said, hey, we should help people figure out how to run their own infrastructure like Google. So I'm curious where we are in that life cycle. I mean, I completely believe we are headed towards this world where m many, many more developers, like, you know, some kid in a dorm room wants to build an application that requires a containerized architecture. Uh, but I feel like we're not 
like not quite there yet. Like, you know, we're still you know, just building web applications and, uh, you know, kind of monolithic things. And um, so I'm kind of curious about how you project this in the future. And, and maybe you can, if I'm wrong, you can, uh, you can disavow me of this notion. And, but, you know, is there a growing number of customers who have a reason to spin up a Kubernetes cluster on day one? Yeah, I think there is. I mean, I think part of this is that the, you know, cloud is just growing, right? I think that no one is, I, I, the joke that I used to say is like, if, if you tell me when your startup started, I can tell you whether you're on-prem or in the cloud, <laughs> right? Like if you tell me you founded your startup in 2005, then you're on-prem. If you started your startup in 2012, 2013, then you're in the cloud. And, and like, and it's, it's actually like, do the survey. I, it, if you talk to people, it actually holds true. And I, so I think that there's this growth in the cloud. And as we start doing that, like those people don't want to, they don't want to deal with kernels. Right. And because they've outsourced their cloud, they can effectively outsource their kernel as well. Um, and I think that's really powerful. I mean, I think this is sort of part and parcel of the whole serverless, serverless movement in general. Right. Um, you know, something like Lambda or Google Cloud Functions is at the extreme. Um, but, you know, even something like Kubernetes really is kind of a serverless architecture from the developer's perspective. It's this sort of amorphous blob of compute resources that you get to throw your application into. Um, and so I, I definitely think that that's true. I think that there's a long way to go in the sense of, you know, one of the analogies that I draw is that it used to be that you kind of had to be a wizard to write applications for phones, right? They were embedded systems engineers. They were hardcore C programmers, you know, even in the sort of like Motorola razor feature phone days where there are actually applications, they were still being built by like some very, very serious embedded systems people. And then the revolution of the iPhone and, and Android came along and you have teenagers writing apps, right? And it's yeah. because they created a, they really focused on the idea of an app store and a develop, you know, a developer toolkit that was aimed at normal developers, not wizard developers, right? And I think that we're not quite there yet for distributed systems. You know, I think that I think Paz's kind of tried to be this, but they were too far. Like they were, they were too restrictive. Um, and so I think what we're headed towards is a place where there is some sort of framework, and I think Kubernetes is part of that. Um, where there is this kind of framework that, that that enables people who are now writing mobile mobile phone apps to write distributed systems with the same degree of ease and the same degree of reliability, um, and I think that will represent a real change. Just like all these apps came out of the phone, like all these apps came for phones that you would never have otherwise imagined because it was easy to build them because people who had good ideas but weren't necessarily embedded systems experts could build these applications and deploy these applications. I think you'll see the same thing in distributed systems. Last question. So how far do you think we are from having a Ruby on Rails for containerized architectures? Oh, I mean, I think Kubernetes is already walking down that path. So, you know, I mean, I think from the idea that you can say, I want 10 of these to a replication controller and it already just does it um, to other things like that. But then I think that there is what needs to happen is the the frameworks that are on that, that run on top need to be built. Right. So like the other way to say this is we had object oriented programming for a while before there were the patterns books that came out, right? Like C plus plus and, and other object oriented languages were around, I mean, in widespread use for probably five years, 1985 to 1990. Uh, 
before you started to see the sort of explosion and or a recognition of the software patterns that made object-oriented programming languages really, really useful, right? Beyond individual teams and really made them broadly useful, made, made people be able to build libraries that were broadly useful. Um, yeah. I think the same thing's going to happen. I think there's a patterns book out there that's, that's waiting to happen. And we've st- I've started talking about some of this. My talk at DockerCon last year talked on some of this. I'm starting to evolve these things a little bit more. Um, I think that's what's necessary. Um, but we have to get the framework done too, right? We have to get the Kubernetes layer to a place where it has the right uh, concepts in it. And I think we're getting really close to that. So I'm pretty excited about the fact that I think we've kind of, we've put in the foundation and, and now people can start building layers on top of us. Great. Well, Brendan, thanks for coming on to Software Engineering Daily and spending some of your time in this interview. Uh, I really appreciate it. Um, And I appreciate your work on Kubernetes. Thanks for having me. It's great to talk.